The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. everybody to politics 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 for july 20th 2022 tom Merritt joining you from the toasty not nearly as toasty as london i know but toasty confines of los angeles california uh very very honored to be asked by justin robert young to fill in for him this week and i am so excited to talk to you about some really interesting stuff on this very show we're gonna talk tech Yeah, I'm usually the host of Daily Tech News Show, so a little bit about the Secret Service text messages, a little bit about a proposed bill to put net neutrality back into law. I'm going to explain what that is, why it matters, and some not tech. I'm very blessed to get a chance to comment on Senator Mitch McConnell, because it means I get to use one of Justin's favorite sound effects. Also, a little bit about the Biden administration finally getting on the Justin Robert Young advice train. Plus, we have two interviews in this episode. Uh, Unions are back in the news. I don't know if you've noticed. Amazon, Starbucks, everybody's getting into unions. Are unions back? Should we all go buy up the Joe Hill and Woody Guthrie records and grab a picket sign? Maybe. I talked to Doug Woodson, longtime union organizer in Chicago, about where unions are now and how they've changed in the decades that he's been organizing. And finally, we hear all the time about election fraud, election suppression. But rarely do we ever talk to the folks that run the election. So I sat down with Meg Seibert, the county clerk and recorder of Bond County in southern Illinois, about her experience running elections, including the recent Illinois primaries. What do folks get wrong? What do folks get right? What concerns does she actually hear from the electorate? Also, she's my sister. I mean, if Justin could have his mom on, I could have my sister on, especially because she's actually a county clerk. But first! There's a big story out there about whether the U.S. Secret Service deleted some text messages from January 5th and 6th, 2021. Uh, The National Archives is going to look into this. They're going to do an investigation. Now, the Secret Service itself says, by policy, it doesn't communicate by text because SMS is one of the least secure forms of communication on the planet, people. If you don't realize that, you should know that. Uh, SMS has no encryption. Uh, SMS can easily be spoofed. Uh, There are widespread documentation about folks being able to just call up a phone company and uh, get a SIM card so they can impersonate someone else with a little cleverness, of course, and having to know a few things about somebody. But it's not that hard. So it doesn't surprise me that the Secret Service has a policy that says, yeah, we don't use text messages. But of course, that doesn't mean that a couple of wayward agents might not have been using text messages because they do have phones. And the Secret Service says some data was lost in a data migration 
when the agency reset its mobile phones to factory settings as part of a pre-planned three-month system migration. They say that was done in January. Now, there's a lot of back and forth about, well, but we asked you about it before you did the reset and et cetera, et cetera. This is all related to the January 6th hearings, and I'll be honest, I can't tell if it's smoke, mirrors, neither, or both. It would be perfectly normal for phones to be reset. It would be perfectly normal for the Secret Service not to worry about saving text messages if they don't have a policy to use text messages. And if they didn't hear from an investigatory committee about this, it's not unreasonable to think that an admin wasn't thinking about the January 6th stuff when they pushed the corporate policy that says wipe out all these phones, reset all these phones, do the security updates. It's a matter of course. You want to get it done, you want to check it off your list. So it is not apparent to me from the technology side of this that there's anything here that's odd. Should they have known? Should they have thought, well, these were in use on that day and I know a lot of people are interested in it. Sure, yeah, maybe they should have. That doesn't mean it was nefarious that they didn't think that. I'm going to guess this all blows away by the time Justin gets back, but if it doesn't, you can deal with it then. Listeners to the Monday show already heard me mention that President Trump told New York Magazine he's deciding whether to announce his candidacy before or after the midterms. He's decided in his mind. He He's clever, obviously. He didn't say, I'm running. But he said he decided, and he's deciding whether to announce, right? It's the game he plays. He's great at it. Say the thing without saying the thing. But what is that? What is that I hear? Is that cocaine Mitch sidling up to a podium? Ah, yes. In light of that New York Magazine article, reporters asked Senator McConnell where he stood on a possible Trump 2024 run. What say you, Mitch? I think we're going to have a crowded field for president. Uh, I assume that most of that will unfold later and people will be picking their candidates during a crowded primary field. Now that, I mean, I... I talked about the genius of President Trump with the non-answers, but that's a beautiful non-answer right there, right out of the playbook. Say nothing against the president, but don't leave a handle for anyone to attach you to them or say you're supporting them, which is interesting when it comes from Glenn Youngkin or Mike Pence, but I find it fascinating to hear that come from Senator McConnell because, let's face it, Mitch don't shy away from direct criticism of the president, whether it's Trump or Biden. Interesting to watch. Uh, Meanwhile, it took Justin leaving the country in order for President Biden's administration to get his message. You need wins. Scuttlebutt, as I record this, seems to be that the Democrats will use reconciliation to pass a prescription drug pricing and health care bill. How cute. Uh, That will reduce the deficit. And cost a mere forty billion dollars, well below, well below the three and a half trillion. Don't don't let the forty and the three and a half mess with your brain. There, forty billion is is like a quarter or less of three and a half trillion. So they won't be spending as lot. Some subsidies for big pharma, some price controls on insurance. Okay, seems like typical congressional graft. Please see Jen Briney for more on on what they actually pass once they actually pass anything. Uh, But if they do that, that would leave the first two years of President Biden's term with the American Rescue Plan, the infrastructure bill, a bipartisan gun safety bill that, you know, they could take partial credit for. And if this passes, a modest health care bill as the accomplishments. 
and lots of executive orders on pretty much everything. Uh, In fact, the president has been playing with the idea of declaring the climate a national emergency to free up funds for some of the climate change efforts he can't get through Congress, uh, which is what President Trump did for the border wall. So that might start if he does it, although it seems like he's backing off of it, but that would start a lovely anti-system game of tit-for-tat. Let's just rule by executive order, something that is horrible for uh, the health of a functioning democracy. But hey, why not? They do it. Why shouldn't we do it? You know, something that has characterized that back and forth is net neutrality. And uh, it looks like we have a bill. I'm not going to say it's going to be a law, but we have a bill on net neutrality. But real quickly, before we get into that, what is net neutrality? Net neutrality is a label that means kind of whatever you want to mean, but it's generally applied to the idea that you shouldn't uh, prefer certain traffic on your network. There's something in shipping called a common carrier. A common carrier means uh, UPS can't say, nah, we're not going to carry your boxes. Uh, or they can't say, no, we're not going to ship teddy bears anymore. Or we're going we're gonna to charge you extra for teddy bears. They, they have to carry everything. If they carry something, they have to carry everything. And obviously, there's exceptions for toxic materials and restrictions on, on that sort of thing. But in general, they can't decide not to carry something because of what's in it, as long as it's legal. Uh, they can charge you by weight uh, and all that, but uh, they, they can't discriminate against the contents of your shipping. Net neutrality is kind of like that for the internet. Uh, It stops a company from saying, uh, you'll pay $40 a month for internet service, but an extra $10 a month if you want video to work. Because what an ISP could do is determine what traffic coming into your house is video traffic and kill it and say, we're not going to let it in unless you pay us extra. Uh, The principle of net neutrality is one that says all packets are equal, uh, and you should just pass the packets along to the house, uh, and 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 that's that. Let let the packets fly where they may. Uh, make your best effort to deliver them as an internet provider, but don't do anything to get in their way. Now, the argument against net neutrality is it also stops you from doing things like prioritizing video to say like, well, but what if we want to make video work better? Video is very very lag sensitive. What if we want to prioritize video and make sure it gets there and Without getting too technical about it, you can go to Daily Tech News Show for for more details about this sort of thing. There are ways to do that without having to prioritize based on uh, the actual content of it. So that's why people care about it. Uh, Companies want to be able to do whatever they want to your traffic, uh, to your packets, so they can charge you more for it, or at least have the flexibility. In practice, they don't tend to do that because consumers don't like it. Uh, but but they want to have the flexibility. They don't want to be restricted. Uh, and a lot of customers would like there to be a law that stops them from doing that. So up until now, it's been a little game of back and forth. Under President Obama's administration, the FCC classified internet as what is called Title II. Title II means that it is like the telephone industry. So it's a common carrier of a sort. In the telephone industry, they can't tell you, well, you can have these kinds of conversations on the phone, but not these kinds of conversations. Those will cost you extra. They, they can charge you for calling a 900 number. That's that's charging you for the destination. But, but the phone traffic itself just goes over the networks, right? Uh, 
And so that is what the internet was classified to under the Obama administration. However, during Ajit Pai's reign with the FCC under President Trump, they got rid of that classification, which returned it to Title I, which is an information system. An information system is what your cable television system is. It says, we can charge you based on what channels you want. Uh, you can get this package and get some channels, but if you want these channels, you have to pay extra. That's something that they haven't done on the internet generally, but they could under a Title I regime. Now, this is where it gets weird, is that they reclassified the internet as an information system, but nobody went and started charging you extra for, you know, CNN.com. Uh, they, they just didn't go that far. Some people say, not yet, but maybe they will. Maybe it's the uncertainty that keeps them going. Anyway, when President Biden was elected, a lot of people thought his FCC would come in and change it back. And they probably would have had they got a majority on the FCC. But uh, Gigi Sohn is held up. She is the, the nominee that would sway the FCC back to be three Democrats to two Republicans. And so they can't play the ping pong game anymore, which is, in my opinion, very bad for the internet to just keep changing the policy based on what administration occupies the White House. So instead, we're getting what I have called for, which is a bill. Uh, we are doing these Title I and Title II classifications based on laws that were made in the 30s for telecommunications, for telephones, and the 90s for cable television. We need a law that says the internet's neither one of those. It's not the telephone and it's not cable television. There are ways in which it is more like cable television that are totally fair and should be used. And there are ways that it is more like telephony uh, that are totally fair and should be used. And it has been my contention that, hey, let's come up with a law for the internet. Of course, you have to have a working Congress for that to happen. However, because the FCC doesn't have a 3-2 majority. It's split 2-2 and can't do anything. The Washington Post reports that U.S. Senators Ed Markey and Ron Wyden, both Democrats, are preparing to propose the Net Neutrality and Broadband Justice Acts. Yeah, I just said they're preparing to propose because that's a thing you can do in Congress. You prepare your proposal, then you propose it before it becomes considered by a committee. It's just the way things work. It's a short bill, two pages. It would simply reclassify broadband telecommunications as Title II, basically saying what they did under President Obama's administration will now be the law. Uh, the FCC doesn't get to choose. We're going to choose for them, which is Congress's role. That's what it's supposed to do. The Internet was reclassified under President Trump as Title I, as I mentioned. Verge's source say they could introduce the bill sometime in August. Uh, and it is not clear if the bill would garner enough support to pass. Because it doesn't have moderate Republican support, it's probably not meant to pass. It's probably meant to be demonstrative. But at the same time, Senators Markey and Wyden uh, are very tech-savvy and generally write good technology rules. So I wish they would go and get someone like Senator Thune, who has proposed reasonable internet-related re legislation in the past, uh, to create something that they could push through. Because heaven knows the Biden administration could use another win to add to that very short list that I mentioned earlier. But there you go. Uh, short class in net neutrality and uh, the possibility that we might be seeing some legislation related to it. 
You know, it does make me wonder, maybe Heaton and me and Shure should all unionize. Uh, but we don't need to because Justin treats us fairly and can pay us because of you. A reminder that TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you can support the show and get extra content. Not only does supporting the show make sure that Justin can do the show, not only does it make sure that you get a show even when Justin takes a well-deserved and important vacation, but if you are a $3 supporter, you get bonus episodes every week. Not only the Wednesday show, not only the Friday show, you get me on Monday looking at the UK headlines. Uh-huh. Not just the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday shows on the US side. I did that. I looked at those too. I My eyes have not recovered, but I did it. But I also looked at the tabloid headlines and the regular newspaper headlines from the UK. That was on Monday. And who knows what you're going to get on Thursday, my friends. I don't, but you will, because you're going to get it if you're a $3 supporter at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You might have noticed there's a lot of news about unions uh, these days. You, you see unions a lot more uh, than you used to a, a few years ago. So I thought it'd be good to sit down and talk to somebody who's been involved with unions for decades uh, now. Doug Woodson, organizer and regional director for Ask Me Council 31. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. We should disclose that Doug and I went to college together, too, you know, just for for full disclosure. So I, I've, no, I've known Doug before he was a union organizer. <laughs> and graduate school. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and the Fantasy Baseball League that I, you know, will start. Ah, you're right. There's soon. so many disclosures, so many <laughs> conflicts of interest. Uh, fantasy Baseball, uh, college. But you, I, 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 yeah, I wasn't joking. You've seen unions from the 90s to now from the inside because i i remember when we were in in grad school you know the idea of unions i don't know that it was statistically at its lowest point but the you know unions were not a common thing that people talked about right i mean i don't think it was statistically at its lowest point at that point but i think from an ideological perspective uh it was certainly going against the grain as a young man in the 1990s to become a union organizer was was not common for sure. And I think um, uh, at that point, um, at that point, I just think, you know, we were just getting out of the 80s for the most part. Um, you know, Bill Clinton was president and um, there was a sense, there was something of a sense that the economy was changing in a way that, that was going to make unions less relevant. And it turns out that that did not turn out to be true, right? Obviously, a union organizer is, is going to think it's harder to organize unions than a corporation is going to think it is. But, you know, from from your side of, of the fence, uh, how hard is it to organize? Has it gotten easier? Has it gotten harder? What are some of the obstacles to get in your way? So that's a good question. So, I mean, I take a step back a little bit. I'd say um, the Gallup poll every Labor Day, right around Labor Day, they do a poll on, on the perceptions of unions. And last year, uh, 2021, their poll showed 68 favorability for unions, 68 percent favorability for unions. Um, and that was like a that was the high for some since like the 1960s or whatever. And when you ask people if they could, if, would they join a union if they could? The number is down a little bit from that, but it's usually like right around 50. 
asking us that question, but there are 10% of the people in our country who are in unions. And, you know, the, the main reason for that, and I actually think if you could give truth serum to the people on the other side of the aisle, they would agree with me on this, um, <laughs> but they wouldn't say it publicly. But the reason for that is just because labor laws don't protect people's right to organize. So there, we, 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 we have laws about the right to organize. We also right. have laws about the right to work uh, in many states. Uh, do you just Is there something in particular that is different about the United States versus other countries that make it ex- extra hard? Well, you know, it's, I, will, I, I can speak, I can speak about what happens in an organizing. Trial, yeah, yeah. And I think that will probably illuminate a little bit. So if you want to form a union at your workplace, what you do is you have to get people together and get enough uh, interest to petition the labor board to hold an election. Right. And technically you need 30% of the people to, to trigger that election in real terms. If you don't get a strong majority, you're, you're in really difficult shape because once you petition for that election, an election would be scheduled like maybe six weeks down the road. And what do you think happens, Mr. Merritt, in those six weeks? Well, uh, I'm asking the questions here, Mr. Woodson, but yeah, (laughs) no, obviously the, the, the company is going to campaign hard against you, right? They're going to they're going to try to convince everyone to change their minds if they needed changing or right. keep their minds if they were against it. That's absolutely right. So they've got people 40 hours a week. They've got power. There's a power imbalance in a non-union workplace. So they they hold captive audience meetings where they pay people to go and listen to anti-union propaganda. They hold one on one conversations. So they'll have a chart. They'll hire a union buster. The first thing they'll do is hire a union buster, an anti-union consultant. And they'll have a chart and they'll say, this is you know, this is Tom Merritt. This is what he thinks about the union. These are ways that we might be able to persuade. So I'm your supervisor and I say to you, Tom, you know, remember two weeks ago when you were an hour late for work because your car broke down and you say, yeah, you know, thanks for, you know, not writing me up or whatever. And say, well, if there's a union, I might have to, you know, I might have to follow rules. So I wouldn't have the freedom, that kind of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have lots of conversations like that. They pick you because they know you're having car trouble. You know, Mm. it might be a single mother who has two or three kids who's just always scrambling to get to work on time, you know. Things like that. So they'll, they, 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 they target people that way. So um, it's a softer touch than the Pinkertons and the Billy Clubs. You know, I, I, there's not much but. in the way of violence, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I just I did a campaign five or six years ago where a supervisor who was involved in the anti-union campaign sort of approached us after the election. And she talked about a lot of the things that, that the company did. You know, and one of the things that they did is they commandeered a room in the facility and they put up cameras in the, in all over in the hallways and stuff. And so if I'm a union activist and you're somebody who's on the fence and the cameras pick up me talking to you, they, you know, they would text the supervisor and say, you got to go break up that conversation. Yeah. So and things that's like that are illegal, That's a legal thing for a company to do to in its own workplace is, that to, is, is to do a rough. certain amount of workplace surveillance. I mean, I'm saying that the surveillance on its own is not the problem, right? I think if the surveillance is, if they put the cameras up precisely for the reason that they want to surveil for union activity, that probably would be, you know, crossing the line. But the point about crossing the line, another point I wanted to make mm-hmm. is that the the punishment, so to speak, for breaking the law is generally you have to put up a posting that says, I'm not going to do it again. Uh-huh. And so, you know, the damage is already done. Oftentimes the election's already um, so the, I'm working with, the, would that be the NLRB that would, that would be the that? NLRB and the private sector is the NLRB. Yeah. But, so the NLRB and the, and the, and the FEC are about equally as strong at being able to ha- put the hammer down. I would say it's, I, I don't know much about the FEC, but I think in this era of deregulation, I guess that that's absolutely true. Well, I was just a, point- a, an ongoing topic on, on this show that Justin talks about uh, is the fact that the federal election commission doesn't even have a full complement of, of people on it. So 
it really can't even do what it's supposed to do. And what it what it can punish people with is fines and and like you say, write ups and things like that. Right, right. Largely slaps on the wrist. And I was, I, I'm right in the middle of dealing with the situation right now with a young woman who was fired for organizing and labor board. Um, found that the company did indeed retaliate against her when they fired her, but it's two years later mm-hmm. and we're just now talking about getting her back to work. So, you know, the damage is completely gone. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's, that's how companies win these elections when, when there's strong support for a union. I don't think it's going to be a shock to anybody listening that uh, companies pull out the stops uh, to to try to convince unions not to form or convince employees not to vote for a union. What do you do on your side to convince people? How how do you get people to go above that 50 percent? I know it's 30 percent maybe uh, legally, but you want to get it so that there's enough people that that you're going to win the vote. How do you do that? I mean, the key is really to have um, strong leaders in the workplace. Right? Um, people who are trusted coworkers, generally, you know, a lot of times, especially in low wage workforces, people that have been around a while, people that care about the place, people that want to make it better, people that are good workers. If those folks are for the union, generally speaking, you can hold on. Um, uh, and you, pre- you just prepare people. You just tell them, you know, what to expect. You know, yeah. this is, you know, this is the question I asked you is a question I would ask if I was talking, you know, about what do you think is going to happen in the next six weeks? That's a question I would ask as an organizer, sure. you know, multiple times a week. Well, and and that's the organizing side of it. What about the the appeal, like the direct appeal to the person who's like, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, what what's the union going to do for me? What what do you say to those folks? Sure, you know, you would think that the arguments that would that would be most effective are the statistics, and you know, the statistics are clear that we're in need to make more money and all that stuff. But really, it's a, you, you try to make it about people's individual work site as much as possible, their individual work issues. Um, and the appeal really is is pretty timeless, which is that you're either going to have a voice at work through a union or you're not, right? I mean, I think there's a, sometimes, you know, we'll, I'll get calls every so often from people who aren't members of the union. They just find us in the phone book, so to speak, right? And somebody will say, hey, my, my employer terminated me and I'm going to file a lawsuit. And if it's a non-union setting, you know, what I say to them is, well, there's no law that protects you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you only have that protection, except for in a few unique examples. You have that protection when you're in a union. So, um, I, the most, I think the most potent message that we have on our side is really, it's kind of, people have to have issues and they have to have some aspirations and some hope that things can get better. And then you just have to, it's about having a voice or not having a voice. Um, Is is that why we're seeing more talk about organizing unions? Uh, and, and I'm curious if you, if you know whether you think there's, there's actually more organizing going on, but, but certainly we see, you know, Starbucks, Amazon, you know, big, big names where, where unionization efforts are happening in the headlines. The NLRB put out a, put out a release and I don't remember the statistics just like last week. And I think more petitions were filed in the first six months of this year than had been filed last year at the same time. And I think it was by a significant jump. I don't think there's any question there's more talk with unions. And I don't think there's any question that people are more fed up. I have I have a couple theories. I mean, over the course of the last generation or two, um, this is kind of wonky, but you know, productivity, worker productivity per like you unit of we love labor. wonky here so that's fine yeah. <laughs> is going way up uh-huh it has been for a long time but wages have not been been keeping pace with that and you know what that really means is that more money is profits right and so i think people are just getting fed up by working harder working better um, being more productive and not seeing it rewarded i believe that the pandemic um shined a light on class issues I think, mm-hmm. in a way that is it's a little bit hard for me to touch and feel but i do think i do think that 
this was a pandemic that 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 hurt people on the lower end of the wage scale more than it hurt people on the higher end of the wage scale. I mean, of the of the people that I work with in my union currently, ninety five percent of them never worked a day at home. They yeah. couldn't because they don't have the types of job. And those are the kind of things that I think, you know, people have been told that they're essential and that they're valued and it's all rhetoric for mm-hmm. the past few years. And I think that's, there's, there's some of that that's happening as well. Um, but you know, the younger generation seems to get it. You know, we started by talking about what things were like in the 1990s. I mean, I would, I would, you know, we'd be at a party in Austin, Texas, and I'd tell people I was a union organizer and people would not even like be able to conceptualize what that meant. Now, not that I wasn't popular, then, but now I would have been, I would, you know, people would really, yeah. really understand it and be intrigued by that. Right? Well, and I think it makes sense to me that if suddenly the economy shuts down, everyone's uncertain, there's a, a virus going around that, you know, remember, remember in 2020, we weren't sure if it was, it was going to kill you or not, if, if you got it, uh, that folks who saw everyone talking about working from home, but couldn't would, would suddenly realize like wait this grocery store job isn't worth my life why why am i putting up with it it, it ch- right. changes the behavior it changes the context the economic uncertainty I, I imagine must play into that what whether or not you actually got a pay rise which a lot of people did just the uncertainty around it followed on by inflation and and prices rising i i imagine has to play into that as well so those are the new factors uh but even even so, there there seems to be, like you said, this idea, maybe especially amongst Gen Z, that that unions are cool, that was not there even with younger people uh, decades ago, and that feels like it's it's a longer term trend. I well, I, I certainly hope so, and I, I think so. I mean, I just think you know, you know, my daughter's not a, she's in high school, she's not a terribly political person, but they just they just have a sense of politics and a sense of justice that I don't think we had when we were kids in the 1980s or 90s or whatever. There's just, it's more part of the fabric of, of how mm. they view the world. Um, so I'm not, that makes me optimistic. Um, I have to believe it's material conditions um, as much as anything. I just, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, you know, we had a workplace where their contract was expiring right after, right in April 30th of 2020, right? And so the employer came to them and said, look, we'll make you a deal. We won't lay people off. And we won't raise health, health insurance, but there's so much uncertainty. Let's just do a pay freeze this year. And our members who are public servants were happy to help. Then, so we extended the contract a year. Then a year later, we go to bargaining and the employer, uh, and these folks have been going to work every single day, getting sick, mm-hmm. risking their families, you know, safety, all this stuff. Go to contract bargaining a year later and the employer proposes a four-year wage freeze on top of the wage freeze they just took. And, you know, they were furious. They were absolutely furious because, and, and, and what it boiled down to is we were, you know, we were being told that we were essential mm-hmm. and that we were heroes and we were making sacrifices. And then, you know, and because there's a union, the employer can't just continue to just, you know, use this rhetoric to persuade people of something that's not true. They have to give you a proposal that measures what they think of you. And their proposal was a four-year wage freeze. And, and I've never seen people as furious um, as that group was at that time. Or if I have, it's been rare. For sure. I, I imagine that the company side of that is, yeah, but we're we're still not making any more money, right? We we have to, we have to have more money coming in, and and I'm, I don't know the situation here, but I I can imagine a situation where the company's like, we have actually less money coming in, uh, so it's not that we want to give you a wage freeze; it's just that that we don't we don't have the the funds to do it. 
Well, and this wasn't a company. This was a municipality. These sure. are these were public sector workers. But I, with with that said, that's it's certainly what they said at the bargaining table. Yeah, yeah. But our members were furious. They made up T-shirts that said "Once Essential, Now Forgotten," and mm-hmm. the O in "Once" was a zero. And everybody wore them to work, and the employer completely caved in, and and there was money on the table in the next session. So, so, so yeah. So, uh, so maybe there wasn't money, but sometimes if you push, you find out there's money. Uh, I, I, or maybe there was always money and they were trying to take a crisis and use it to their advantage. I mean, we, after the 2008 uh, economic downturn, you know, companies were just saying, oh, you know, things are terrible. We have to do a wage freeze. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a year later, you would start to, you would start to see their, their, you know, their filings, you know, at, at, at that time I was organizing a large nonprofit health insurance, um, healthcare company. And it was an article of faith that they were broke because the, the economy took a downturn. Well, when we got their filings, they were a nonprofit. We got their filings um, a year or two later. They were making as much money as they ever did. Mm-hmm. It's just it was just it was a crisis that they thought they could exploit. How do you tell the difference, right? Because the, I, I'm sure there are situations where an organization or a company or a municipality doesn't have the funds, uh, and and yet. They, there's lots of ways to show that they don't have funds where you might be suspicious that they're they're not showing you the the truth. Uh, I imagine from your side, it's easy. You just you just negotiate for the best deal for, for people. But from the outside, you know, I, I'm wondering, like, well, how do you how do you tell the difference between a company that really is in, in harm's way? And if you push too hard, it, it, it's actually not going to be beneficial for everybody. Um, I would say that you should be skeptical of all those claims. I mean, as, as I've mentioned before, I mean, pro- workers are not, if, if a company is in harm's way, it's rarely because wages in our society in 2022, it's rarely because wages are too high. I mean, that's, um, and well, even you, in higher resources are definitely the largest, you know, expense on, in most companies. Right. But well, I mean, I don't know if they're the largest expense in many companies, but, but be that as it may, even, um, when you push, you find out that there's, it's about, I guess I would say it's about resource. It's about priorities and not resources, mm-hmm. 99% of the time. And, you know, what the point that we always make is, is the reason that you're even a company is because you've got people providing goods and services. For sure. you. And, and generally speaking, like I said, this is, this is not, this is not an ideological thing. This is based on experience. Employers always say that they don't have enough money sure. for, wages i mean always almost well that's why i asked the question because i'm like well of course they're going to say that but but sometimes they might mean it and uh, you know look i represent a lot of uh of people who who provide services to the developmentally disabled in in private sector nonprofit settings they get their their funding directly from the state there is some truth when they say we don't have enough money to pay the wages that we that 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 we think we should pay in a situation like that we help them we help them through, you know, organizing our members to, in, the, in the political forum. We help them, you know, increase funding for valuable services like that. Yeah, this is a bit of an off the wall uh, question, but uh, how 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 do you, from your side of things, view innovative ways of of com- compensating people? Like, uh, let's just for the sake of argument, imagine a scenario where company has a base salary that everybody gets, uh, but they do a percentage profit sharing that says, Hey, as the company does better, you'll, you'll get more money. Uh, have, have you, is there, is there an issue with that? Do you welcome that sort of thing? How do you feel about that? We don't welcome it. <laughs> I would say, you know, it's, it's always better, it's always better to get money if from the perspective of the employee, it's always to be better to get money to get the guaranteed money. Yeah. It's, it's guaranteed. It, you get, you know, if you work overtime, 
is factored in there at time and a half. You know, if you're part of a, if you're one of the lucky few nowadays, that's part of a defined benefit pension plan. It's money that that counts towards your pension. Um, but just in general, when you start doing more exotic things like that, sometimes it can be difficult. Um, it can be difficult to measure and it can be difficult to provide the type of transparency that is important to make the workplace fair. I mean, one of the things about unions that I think people, a lot of people don't realize is that because, because there's a, a wage scale that's objective, what you find is that there's less of a gap in pay between men and women mm-hmm. and, and white people and people of color and things like that. And that's because people get paid based on their seniority. And so what it does is it eliminates a lot of the, the more nebulous and more, um, subjective factors when, when you say it's harder to do transparency uh, is that because companies aren't willing to give uh stuff or or that they can't give the the data on on profit sharing and things like that probably that they're not willing when push comes to shove it might be difficult but yeah, mm-hmm. oftentimes when when they feel that the transparency is benefits them that they, they find yeah yeah way. i see my, my experience well I know there's a lot of folks in our audience who are very happy with everything you've said. Uh, and then there are other people in our audience. Uh, and I imagine a lot of those folks uh, are are wanting to wanting me to ask the question uh, that, that people have about unions that are like, well, wait, what if I don't want to be part of the union? What if a union comes in and, and organizes, you know, I don't want to have to pay uh, for the union. Why, why should I be made to? Because, you know, we, you know, this is a political show, but I'm more interested in democracy than politics. And, you know, when your when your coworker, a majority of your coworkers votes to have a union, then, you know, majority should rule. I mean, I don't I mean, I didn't vote for Donald Trump, but I paid taxes in the Trump administration. Right. I mean, you don't you if you're a part of a democratic system, you have to you have to pitch it. And what I would say to those people, too, is you're making you are making you're making more money because of the union. You have better benefits because of the union. You have work rules that the employer has to follow because of the union. Mm-hmm. So you might not like it, but, you know. You are benefiting from it. What 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 are some of the other headwinds you get from actual workers? Uh, you know, misconceptions, things that that you think people don't quite understand about how a union works in twenty twenty two. When I I really do think a lot of us have sort of a an eighteen nineties Joe Hill idea of of sure. what unions are. I mean, I think for, I think working people and people that are in unions, most of their misconceptions are really through their employer trying to manipulate. Um, information. Mm-hmm. I will say that in the more general, in the more general sphere, people who are, you know, perhaps not the types of people who view themselves as the as people that should join a union. I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully because I think everybody should be in a union, but more middle class or you know professionals or whatever. I mean, I think there's a view of unions, like you said, 1890s or whatever. But I actually looked the statistic up before we talked today. In 1983, men were twice as likely almost to be members of unions than women, and now that's even. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the demographic group that is most likely to be in a union right now is African-American workers. So I think those are the types of misconceptions that I hear a lot about that people, people have a, when they close their eyes and think of a union member, they think of a union member in the pre, in the, in the pre deindustrialization time. But nowadays, you know, you're just as likely to be in a union if you're in the service sector or the healthcare sector than you are if you're in yeah how, how do you feel about uh not not feel about you know sort of like are you angry about it, but what 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 is your take on the expansion of unionization into white collar situations like media like like baristas well baristas are not necessarily white collar but yeah. more the service industry it's about time i think that um i think that people who are in what are traditionally considered professional um uh jobs 
get taken advantage of. And because they're professionals, that sometimes they don't want to admit they're being taken advantage of. It's as an organizer, it's it's in some ways easier to deal with the barista tech or the, the people who are just hourly low wage folks because they they don't have the ability to kind of delude themselves. But I think a lot of professionals candidly do delude themselves. I mean, when I when I mentioned those productivity numbers, like those are professionals too, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Everybody is more productive now, and everybody is seeing their wages not keep up with their productivity. And uh, well, one of the numbers I've seen is that we also work more. Yeah, We're more productive, but also putting in more hours right. at the same right. time. And I think productivity just measures what you what you produce uh, mm-hmm. as much. as I mean, I, I I think you can measure it by by unit of labor, but I also think you can just talk about productivity overall. And workers are more productive now. This technology, that's hours of work, that's you know, not taking as many breaks. All yep. those types of well, and work from home caused a lot of people to take fewer breaks. And there, there's some good uh, there's some good research on on that where you are just as productive at home, but you, you may not stop work at the same time because you don't have to get in the car and go home. No, for sure. You have to, you have to be able to, when you work from home, you have to be able to wait to figure out a way to, to, you know, have, have a space. So when you're not in that space, you're not at work, those yeah. types of things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, the, this is a, a, a sort of a wider question. Uh, but uh, again, on this show, Justin has coined the phrase uh, of the, uh, especially regarding the Republican Party, the ye old faction, which is the, you know, ge- the, the George W. Bush, Richard Nixon faction of the Republicans and the yeehaw faction, which is the more, you know, Trump or Trump oriented, like, you know, sure. working class uh, aspect of the Republicans. And and we see that shift happening as the, you know, the Democrats are starting to be perceived as a little more elite. The Republicans are perceived to be as a little more uh, working class. Unions traditionally are seen as very working class, obviously, but also aligned with the Democratic Party. Um, is that affecting you at all in in, in your daily work? daily work not not so much i mean we have i mean our members live in society right um and uh uh are sometimes you know they they they're just as likely to watch fox news as anybody else what we find when it comes to the union and this is one of the things that i love about unions and one of the reasons i think that unions are actually like a path forward for our country is that we organize on micro principles in many respects right we organize you and i are co-workers you're a republican i'm a democrat we're organized together for the betterment of our of ourselves as workers in the same facility, and so a lot of the ideological stuff melts away at that point. Um, I was just I just had this um, this this thing happen that really struck me a few a few months ago. Somebody I've known forever was retiring, and she was a nurse in a campaign that I was helping the nurses organize. And she is as conservative Fox News. I mean, Tea Party back when the Tea Party was the thing, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So she and I, I mean, they have a genuine affection and genuine love for each other, and. Um, it's because we were in a foxhole together, right? And she thinks I'm crazy. I think she's crazy when it comes to politics. But, but you know, we were able to put that aside. And unions, because we organize kind of on a plane that's different than than big politics, I think we're much more able to cut through the noise. And I, I think, you know, I, I have a, I know somebody who was a local president in Springfield, Illinois, down by your hometown. And she, in the 2016 election, she was hearing that a lot of her members were going to be voting for Trump. And so she went and she just sat them down and she's respected. She won an election as the president. So they respect her, right? So she just sat down with them and said, here's Trump's record. Here's what Trump says he wants to do. That's bad for us, right? And she probably didn't persuade everybody, but she probably persuaded a number of them. And I think 
I often think if we had pre-NAFTA levels of union density in Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, we would live in a very different political environment right yeah. now because that, those conversations would have been happening over and over and over again in factories and nursing facilities and so you don't see any kind of shifting of alignments. It's it 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 sounds like you know we're seeing things where you know Hispanics are voting Republican in larger numbers, and and some of the things that traditionally were in one side or the other are shifting back and forth. It doesn't sound like you're seeing any of that on the ground. We've always had members who were conservative um, and who uh, you know would perhaps vote for for Republicans based on cultural issues and things like that, but. You know, like I said, we're at our best when we're when we're not when we're talking about bread and butter daily, you know, mm-hmm. kind of issues that people care about in their in their personal lives. And when that happens, it's just amazing how quickly the the the, the politics stuff melts away when you're when you're talking about stuff like that. So, like I said, we're you know we're a part of we're a part of the United States, and our members are you know are subject to the same media as everyone else. But, yeah, yeah. But, but we we array, we're usually pretty successful at getting people kind of aiming. Well, I'm glad that that you and I could reach across the aisle uh, today and have this conversation. Of course, Doug is a White Sox fan. I'm a Cardinals fan. But, you know, there are things we can unite on, like not liking the Cubs. Like like not liking the Cubs. That's precisely right. Uh, Doug, it was great talking with you, man. Uh, It's always great talking with you, but it's great talking to you about this on this show. Uh, Thanks for coming on. If there's anything that folks you want to let folks know about a, a resource or anything that you want them to, to follow. Is there something like that you want to tell them about? You know, it sort of depends on, um, I think nowadays it doesn't take much on the internet to figure out what, you, if you want to form a union at your workplace, it doesn't take much to find out, um, which, which union would be best for you. Uh, I think, um, I don't want to plug any specific unions, but I know that there's a lot of activity in the tech sector, for example. Um, and I think it wouldn't be hard to, to, to track those organizers down. I have a I have a locked Twitter profile. Tom, maybe you can tell me this. Can somebody send me a private message? If, if you I, are, you can have a setting where you can take unsolicited messages, but you have to go into the settings and 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 choose that. I, I could probably figure that out. But it, and at Doug underscore Woodson, if somebody wants to send me a message, I can try to hook you up. Yeah, and and at the very least, folks, uh, thank Doug for being on the program at Doug underscore Woodson, uh, as as we like to do on this show. Real quickly before I go, I almost forgot. I don't know if you can answer this, but is I, I, there's a, a thing out there where people hear that somebody's organizing a union, and then the union sounds like it has nothing to do with that that particular <laughs> union, right? It's it's uh, like the pipe fitters sure. union, but it's sure. people who are you know hooking up fiber cable or, or something. Why does that happen? Is is it just a a branding issue? <laughs> what? Well, I think you know it's, it is. A, it's a very good question. I think you know when when many unions were formed, a lot of these jobs didn't exist. Right? Yeah, and yeah. So, so somebody had you know. And sometimes it's pretty logical, like communicating with workers or doing a lot of stuff in in the tech sector. That there's you can see a path towards that. Sometimes my first successful campaign as an organizer was a was a group of people who care for the developmentally disabled and. They had previously tried to organize with Teamsters, mm-hmm. and the answer there was just that one of the one of the people who worked there's husband was a Teamster, and they didn't you know they just say hey, let's 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 call the union we know. So I think it's a lot of that. I mean, it's it's probably if there's a hundred examples, there's probably a hundred different stories. I, I had to guess. Yeah, and and there's not I, I guess the the thing that I I have to remind myself is there's not just a union. There's there's a lot of them. That's correct. I mean, one of the big misnomers is people think of the AFL CIO as a union. The AFL CIO is actually just an umbrella group for unions, as an example. 
Right. It's like the trade organization for unions, sort of. Yeah, I mean, we don't like to think about things in the kind in, in, in those type that businessy type of way, but sure. it's an umbrella organization. It's you know, they it's a way for us to focus our resources. Gotcha. Our, uh, well, once again, Doug, thank you so much uh, for talking with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Meg Seibert is a farmer. She's a painter and, more importantly for this show, the Bond County clerk and recorder in Bond County, Illinois. She's also my older sister, for full disclosure. Welcome to the show, Meg. <laughs> you had to add older. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to give you the respect you deserve. Oh, thank you. you. And Uh, thank you for having me. Sincerely. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Uh, You know, Justin gets to to talk to his mom on the show uh, all the time. So I figured it was only fair uh, for me to work the family connections, especially (laughs) because if people don't know, one of the main jobs of county clerks in the United States of America is to run elections, which that's nothing, right? That's just you do that in your sleep. Nobody pays attention. It's it's easy these days, right? (laughs) It's become more and more popular as time goes on. (laughs) Uh, Which, you know, I guess could have a good side uh, to it. But one of the things I wanted to talk to you about in all seriousness was there are a lot of misconceptions about how an election is run. And and one of the things you were pointing out to me is how election is run varies from place to place. I think sometimes from county to county even. Uh, Not from county to county in the state of Illinois, at least. all counties, with the exception of, and everyone will laugh at this, with the exception of Cook County and some of the collar counties, they actually have more stringent rules on them because of Cook the population Cook County being where size. Chicago is, right? Uh, yeah. uh, right. Um, but all the counties in the state of Illinois pretty much have the same election code. We all have the same election code. We all have the same statutes that we uh, are tied to, that we follow, Um the the thing is, what we do in Illinois is completely different than what they do in California or Pennsylvania or Texas or every state varies. Um, and so I think, and rightly so, that's some of the confusion uh, for people is that they think elections, election rules are the same across the board and they're not. Um, in Illinois, we we have thankfully some more progressive rules. Um, you know, our early voting starts six weeks ahead of the election, uh, as does our vote by mail. Um, during the 2020 election, for example, when we had such an outpouring of vote by mail because of COVID and and, and other reasons, uh, and, and that's a popular election, a presidential election always is. Um, we, I had election judges in my office every every other day doing the signature match on returned vote by mail, processing those and putting them through the tabulator. And I don't actually tabulate or, or count those votes until election night, but all of that back end process, or I guess front end process is done and ready. So all I have to do is tabulate the vote on election night and I have immediate results. So what, what, um, what- what? Why do you put it through the tabulator if you're not tabulating it? What does that do? Uh, to secure it. Ah, uh huh. Because no one can get into that tabulator. They're they're it's locked. Um. So you know, I don't want to hold voted ballots mm-hmm. loose in my office. So yeah, yeah no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and 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 so what what's the distinction between running it through the tabulator and it being counted then? How what's the difference? Uh, so when I count at the end of and actually I do early vote last early in uh, vote by mail. Um, you're basically asking the tabulator, give me the count, give me, give me the votes. Mm-hmm. And it, it gets loaded to actually for our equipment, it's loaded to a, a thumb drive. And then all of those are, are actually triple checked um, to make sure the numbers kind of all balance. Um, and so then you actually know who, who vote, you know, what, what the vote count is for the, for that particular machine. All right. And so, it's actually what it's actually what they're doing at the polls. Okay. Once the polls close in Illinois, they're also closing out the tabulator, running the counts, running the election summary tapes, and all that. So. Okay. So so the vote, the data on the vote being tabulated sits on the tabulator until election night. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which to back to our original point, that's the way you're doing it in Illinois which allows right. you to quickly count up those votes, but that's not the way every state does it, which... No, and I know you and I were talking about uh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and my understanding of how, you know, that because it, the last presidential election, obviously, it took forever to get the count from Pennsylvania. Um, my understanding is, is they couldn't even open up their vote by mail until the polls closed. Um which if we had had to do that for the 2020 election, just my little county, um, we would have been there late into the night and maybe early, you know, early morning into the next day trying to to process all of that. And that's um, you know, tens of thousands of votes in your case versus, you know, Allegheny County, you're talking millions of votes. Right. Right. And- what goes into processing? I, I imagine it can be different from state to state as well, but you know what 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 is involved in just before it even gets into the tabulator? What you what are you doing? Like, what do you mean? Like, what's that processing that you talked about signature matching and stuff like that? Like, how, oh, I'm trying oh, to get a sense of like um, how long does it take per ballot? You well, know, what, it's what's it's the, really what you, similar to like in Illinois when you walk into a polling location. We still in Bond County, we still use paper poll books. Everything's paper um, for us, which there was a push to do that. And then cybersecurity concerns happened. And we we have always used paper, paper poll books. So you walk in, you uh, the election worker will ask for your name. You verify your address. If those two match, they have you sign your application to vote, which is out of that poll book. Then they do a signature match. They look and make sure those sign- both those signatures match. Um, then it goes to the next judge. They number it, spindle it, look at the ballot style, tell the next judge what the ballot style is. Um, what we're doing for vote by mail is basically they're taking the application to vote by mail, which is with the voted ballot, um, and doing a signature match on that. And then they do a signature match on that because the person has to sign the back of their sealed ballot mm-hmm. envelope so they do a signature match with that and honestly most of, most of the time in here we know who people are but in most of the time it, it it matches i did for the 2020 election 
they would kick signatures that didn't match to me. Um, and I would call people and go, your signature doesn't match what I have on file. You need to come in, bring me your, you know, your photo ID mm -hmm. with your signature. Uh, and, and my favorite is I called a gentleman and said, your signature doesn't match. And he said, which one did I use? And I said, well, apparently the wrong one. <laughs> the one that matching. doesn't match. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and he did. He came in, he signed, obviously it was him. It, you know, uh -huh. it, everything was fine. But, you know, we really do look. So you never, you so. never had someone where it turned out like they never came in or they were trying to get away. It was just signatures. Didn't. I had one person who, and my suspicion is, is that his wife signed his signature oh. just out of convenience, but it didn't match. And they, they, they never you know, I called up. several times and they never came in. So unfortunately that one was not counted. Okay. But. So yeah, you had one mystery, but, but everything else was, was right. cleared up. But, but I think that answers a question I've always had because in California, when you send your absentee or your, your mail-in ballot uh, in, you sign the envelope as well. And I always wondered, well, why am I doing that? Right isn't that putting my name on the ballot but it's not obviously your ballot's in a separate envelope inside that envelope i get that part but i wondered about the signing and now it makes sense because you're signing when you go in person so you're just doing that right. part remotely essentially right. and, and chances are um where you're at is they probably actually run those through a machine that is going to do the signature match for them mm-hmm and then if it does, if the machine doesn't think it matches, it'll kick out. Now we don't do that. We do it all manually. But. Yeah. I've never, uh, never had them call me and ask me. Well, apparently you're using which, the right signature. Which signature <laughs> I use. So I, uh, I, I imagine most people don't think about it much though. They probably just scrawl one on there, you know. With, well, it, it. a lot of times, and we get it with, you know, 18 year olds register to vote. Well, your signature evolves over time. Sure. So you know, they, you can come in and you update your signature, older people, you know, their signature change, your signature changes, the older you get. So, you know, if it's somebody that the election judge knows, they know the signature isn't exactly right. They'll give us a note to say, please rescan signature and mm -hmm. we'll update their signature record. So, so, uh, so, so you, you basically answered my question about, you know, it, it. you have to look at the envelope, match the signature, and then what? You just open the envelope and put it in the tabulator? Is there not much else there? Not much else there, Yeah, no. okay. And that's, you know, that's and not that And there's so that many much. of them that you, you can't, they're all, it's all separate. We've already separated out the application from the envelopes. We, you know, and really nobody wants to know how people vote. It's, I don't, I don't want to know how you vote. I, you know, there's a concern. It's like, well, they're going to know how I voted if they open up the envelope. At that point, the name isn't even that envelope with your signature on it. That's a, that's a, you're putting an envelope, you put your ballot in an envelope, you put that envelope in an envelope. That's when you sign. So yeah. your signature is long gone by the time they open up the, the ballot. It's so. not a foolproof system, but it's, well, no. it's a system that would require someone to really intentionally you know, right. try to circumvent the procedure and the rules, right? You just finished uh, conducting an election. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there was a primary was on election. on your birthday. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a primary election uh, in honor of my birthday in Illinois <laughs> at the end of June. Uh, how does that go when you're in an off-cycle primary election? Is it easier or is it pretty much the same amount of work, just fewer votes to count? 
they're all the same amount of work uh, for us. Mm-hmm. Um, same amount of election judges, same amount. I mean, everything is the same. The statute really doesn't change for us. So you're required to um, staff up at the same level just in case, right? Correct. Just, yeah. Okay. Correct. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, the election cycle for us is the primary kicks it off. It's a primary general primary. So it's a primary for the general election in November. Uh, typically for us, it's held in March, but because of COVID pushed back the census, the census pushed, pushes back redistricting, which we do every 10 years for the census. So that's why the primary ended up in June. Um, so we have the primary, the general election in November, and then we have the, uh, what we call in Illinois, the consolidated election in April. Uh, and that's actually all the municipalities, mm-hmm. municipalities, school boards, park districts, uh, forest preserves, all, all of that stuff. Um, all of the things that people are things that affect you personally, you know, your, your city, your, your township in some, some cases, uh, not this election that's every four years, but you know, all of that. And that's for us, that's the lowest turnout that we get. My last consolidated election, I, it it was an 8% turnout. And that was really disappointing because like you said, you're going through all the same work. You know, I, I liken it to you're planning a party, mm-hmm. and then nobody showed up. <laughs> yeah, and you and the statute requires you to plan for the capacity party. Oh yeah, every time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And people don't that that is well known. People don't take advantage of voting if there's as often if there's not a presidential election or at least a congressional right. election. The midterm elections get a little better uh, turnout, but it's. It, 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 do you have a message to the the youth of the world about voting locally? <laughs> I, I I was the same way at the same age, so I you know I can't I can't throw rocks, but um, you know be you should be engaged. Know you know especially if you're living somewhere and there you know these are things that affect you right away. I mean. Yes, at the at the federal level, that affects you too to some degree. But this, the municipal ones are the ones that really have a bearing on your day to day life. So, um, the uh, twenty twenty election certainly got a lot of attention, <laughs> uh, and really and, and <laughs> ca- counting of votes and and how elections were conducted and everything was obviously the huge a huge topic. Uh, I imagine there was less pressure on county clerks not just you but across for for these for these primaries and off off term elections except maybe in you know uh Pennsylvania or or Georgia where where there's hot races well, do, but do um, you feel that's true Yes and no I mean I think the light that was shown on the 2020 election or the concerns that were expressed um has sparked an interest Mm-hmm. Um, in how elections are run. And I mean, I get calls frequently on, you know, voter fraud, you know, how does it work? And typically after I've walked them through it, it's like, well, I don't think it's happening in Bond County. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure it's not. Um, but hey, being an election judge for me, you'll see it up close and personal, everything that we go through all the checks and balances, you know, everything that we do to bend over backwards to make sure that it's, it's fair and equitable. So, um, so yes, it wasn't nearly the 
um, volume of voters, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still there's there's still every county clerk wants to do a good job. Um, they they want the election to go smooth. They want things to be done correctly uh, and by the book. So that pressure is always there um, to make sure that everything goes well. And oddly, you know, the thing, the, the smaller or the, the not as popular election or, or busy, that's when all kinds of weird stuff happens. <laughs> is that because there's just not as many eyes on it? Did well, I mean? no, I just, it just seems like, you know, you have poll workers that don't show up, uh, and, you know, just uh, stuff like that, stuff that you have to deal with. So, you know. Do you, uh, how long have you been county clerk? Since 17. Okay, so September of seventeen, and uh, I was in the office since November of fifteen. What are some of the common concerns that you hear now that maybe you didn't hear back in seventeen? Well, I mean, it, and unfortunately, they're they're not specific. I mean, I I'll, I'll get, and I get fortunately or unfortunately, it, mm. look, it'll be we we have to address this voter fraud issue. And it's like, well, tell me what you tell me what you mean, mm-hmm. you know. And once we get into it, I'm like, you know, I try to explain the process and in that sort of thing. The other is, you know, oh, those dusty voter rolls. Mm-hmm. And, and you and I spoke about that. It, it's it, at least in Illinois, and again, every state's different. Um, I have a full-time person in my little county that that's her full-time job is to update the voter rolls every day. And so, so that's a fraud concern is that you've got old voter rolls with names on there of people who are deceased or no longer live in the area and somebody could pretend to be them. Is that the idea? Well, it would be difficult. They'd have to have their signature. They'd have to, Mm -hmm. you know, and and even in our County, it even more difficult because we kind of know everybody, but Um, but we get updates from the state all the time, um, cross state matches, you know, if somebody moves to Texas, you know, we'll get, get a, you know, told that they've moved, if they get a driver's license. Um, but we're only as good. There are only certain ways that we can change the you know, we can cancel a voter in Illinois. It's, it's very, they're, they're very focused on making sure that everybody has access to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, if a child moves out of the house I, and I get this a lot, it's like, well, they, they went to college, they moved, they have a job in Minnesota. And I'm like, did someone tell me that? <laughs> you know, now you're it's making like, me wonder I don't if I'm go out and investigate. <laughs> in, in Illinois, right. yeah. <laughs> There's no voter registration police that goes out and checks to make sure you live where you live. But. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 dusty old voting rolls. Uh, you said you've got a you've got a person full time checking that, trying to do the best to yeah. make sure it's as accurate as possible. You said that the other the other voter fraud concerns are, are rather vague. I mean, what are they saying? Just like I heard, there's voter fraud. You need to stop it, or or are they? Yes, that's. That, that's much it? it. Like, there's not even anything yeah. more specific than that. Well, and it, it's it's it really no. I, I, it's it's it is just. I mean, um, and it, one one example, um, and this was this is kind of third hand, but you know, well, in in Georgia, they were bringing in suitcases of ballots and sure. they were rerunning okay. them. Uh-huh. Well, 
if you come into my office on election night and your numbers don't match, your summary tape doesn't match your 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 physical ballots mm-hmm. and your spindles because you spindle that application, you number it. If those three numbers don't match, we're going to rerun your ballots. Mm-hmm. Actually, I won't. I have two election judges, one from each party that will mm-hmm. rerun the ballots and we'll see what numbers we come up with to to see what's going on. And sometimes it's as simple as, you know, ballots got stuck together or, Mm -hmm. you know, it it didn't, you know, they spindled something wrong and they have two sixes or, you know, something. Sure. Um, Usually my election judges are good at going through and and figuring it out. Um, But before I got this new equipment, we had equipment that we had, purchased with a grant in 2006 um and we were starting to have the computer card fail so it was tabulating it correctly but the basically the old version of a thumb drive would go bad so then we would have to rerun the ballots so in 2018 we had several of those cards go bad so the election judges would have to rerun the ballots in my office make sure it matched Mm -hmm. the tape that they had ran when, when they ran it, when they closed the polls. So, I mean, there's a lot of checks and balances on that, but I can see where somebody standing in my office, not knowing what's going on, seeing us having to rerun these ballots would say, well, they're just pulling in ballots and and running them. Mm -hmm, Well, mm -hmm. no, we're not. Yeah. Well, and also they were saying, I heard about a thing somewhere else. I want to make sure oh, that, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. that that doesn't happen there. Uh, well, it uh, it's a hard job, and and I know that you get to know all the other county clerks uh, throughout the the state anyway, because yeah. y- y'all meet uh, from time to time. Uh, do you feel like across party lines uh, that county clerks sort of have a f- sense of solidarity because there's so much attention? Oh, very much so. Uh, and even and even before this, um, I haven't experienced this kind of um, camaraderie, I guess, mm-hmm. or acceptance of, you know, we're all in this together. Um, county clerks, were, we wear a lot of different hats. Not, you know, oddly, we don't just run elections. We have, you know, we, we're responsible for all the vital records. We're responsible for recording, and most counties recording all of the land records, um, we do accounts payable, we, you know, do t- tax extension, we, all kinds of stuff. Right. Um, so we're in the state of Illinois, we're broken up into zones. So our zone, my zone one is the best zone in Illinois. I have to give that plug. Um, we are very tight. And if somebody's got a question, shoot out an email, you know, you get a multitude of answers right away. Uh, and, and, and quite honestly, throughout the state, I haven't met a county clerk that we, we don't, we just gel very, we're very close. It kind of, you know, we've all, we're all in this together. We all have similar experiences. Um, it, it, it's very nice. Yeah. Well, it's a community. It's a community with it, a very, very common bond over, Oh yeah. you know, yeah. All, all there's not things. another job in the world like it. So yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Uh, well, zone number one is number one for a reason. It sounds like it does. Yeah, obviously. Uh, before we go, is there any 
resource that people can that you can point people to or something you'd like people to know about that maybe they 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 don't know is there for for educating themselves on on this sort of thing um just your state whoever runs your elections like state board of elections in illinois is the body that we work with they have a wealth of information out there on their website i know a lot of states have their secretary of state is the the ultimate entity in charge of elections, I would bet they have a lot of information. Um, and call your county clerk, call, you know, we, I, I want people to understand the process. It's not shrouded in mystery or behind a curtain. You know, we, we want to shine a light on it because we do work very hard to make them, make them fair. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense to me that the, the more people actually reach out to their local official, to find out what's going on with the right. elections rather than reading something on Facebook, uh, you're going to have a better idea of what's actually happening. That, that could be a different state. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Meg, thank you so much uh, for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. That will wrap it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted this time by me, Tom Merritt, for Dog and Pony Show Audio. The show was edited by Brett Stewart. Uh, We've got an email address here. Justin reads it, not me. So if you want to complain about me, I'll never know. Theyoungamerican at gmail.com. The Twitter account is at px3tweets. The Twitch account is px3live.com. You getting the, you getting the theme here? PX3. The podcast? Well, it's at px3podcast.com. The merch? Well, that one's different. It's politicsmerch.com. But that's important. You want to remember that one separately because that's where you're going to get cool shirts and hats and stuff like that. You can also support Justin with a one-time donation. His PayPal address is paypal.me slash payjury. Just send him a dollar. Actually, send him a dollar one and in the note say you know what having tom on made it just one cent better uh also venmo cash is not real but there is an ongoing experiment to find out what it is and the only way that justin could carry out that experiment is if you send him some dough justin-young-20 on venmo or the cash app uh dollar sign px3 cash you can even send him a check i would like it if you send him a check as a telegram, but I'm not sure how that works. So the mailing address is P.O. Box 153184, P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. If you do send them a check, uh, just put a little note in there with it said, Tom sent you. Of course, you can always get your bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier. MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Level, Katie, Amanda, Ye Old Pinball Shop, DP4 Bongo, Neemeister, Catherine, Vagard, persons familiar with the matter, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Dr. G, Neil of Neils, Charles, Darren, Idris, Arslanian, Blue Front, and the Lanina, DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana's Shrill Shrieks, Miranda Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, 
Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, D. Laser, just another pilot. Middle-aged Mike, who loves Frank Got Abducted. Utah, Jimmy Montana, The Gen, A-L-D-L-D-L. Do you really? Chopper, Andrew, Joshua, Sarah, and me. you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.